Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And uh, I'm in Connecticut, and he's in Vancouver, and this is how we've been doing the show even before COVID, right, man? Yeah, yeah. We, we, we stayed home before it was cool. Actually, it's not true. I mean, we spent a lot of time on the road. Right. And, and doing shows in person as well, but uh, definitely geared up and working from home this past year. Yeah, and now we, you know, we've been using all sorts of technology to record and stuff, and we're happy to report that Zencaster is now really, really good. We tried it before, and that's Zencaster without an E, so Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com. We tried it before when it was in its early stages, and we lost shows. We lost yeah. data. So, we were like, ah, eh, can't trust that. Well, uh, you know, the, for better or worse, at least with Skype, when Skype went wrong, you knew it while you were recording, you could compensate. Right. The real sin is to finish a show, be delighted with it, and then find out you don't have the recording. Right. Like, that's what makes people sad. Yes, uh, exactly. With Skype, we were listening to what we were recording. With this, Zencaster records locally on your computer. Everybody records locally on their computer, but it also shares audio. So, but if there's an I.O. problem locally, we won't know about that. Yeah. Although it's gotten better and better at detecting. I've found on the run-ass side when I've used Zencaster, if someone can't pass the Zencaster connection requirements yeah. and get to that green light that says, okay, you weren't going to get a good recording with them anyway. True. <laughs> and uh, I think it does quite a bit of good reporting if there's an yeah. IO problem. Yeah. Doing analysis. But it's fun to modernize, isn't it? You know, it is. folks have talked to me about podcasting. Of like, I think the biggest challenge Carl and I have is shaking off the cruft of doing this for so long. Right. That we have a lot of practices that are no longer relevant. That's true. And the the other cool thing about Zencaster, well, it's cool and it's not. They recently updated. Yes. And the big feature is video. So not only is it recording your audio locally, but it's recording your webcam um, or your camera locally to an MOV file. Hmm. And uh, after everything is done and we stop, uh, I, because I started it, I can download all of the MP3 files and the MOV files, and we could send that off to an editor and put it together in uh, Adobe Premiere or Final Cut or whatever, and turn it into a yeah. video. Cool. But that's the upside of the new Zencaster. The downside is they kind of screwed up some things with devices. Oh, well, you know, I don't envy anyone trying to update software like that. But Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we've had to work around a few issues, but uh, most... Most of it's been good. But anyway. It means you can't just sit down and record, right? You have to take a little time in advance, make sure stuff is working. Yes. And, you know. Yep. Well, we, Amber McKenzie is, workflows. Well, Amber McKenzie is here, and uh, we're going to have a really great talk with her in just a few minutes. But first, we have this little matter of better know a framework. Roll the music. <laughs> dude what do you got well i haven't talked about the stuff that i've done on blazer train in a while but one recent episode was just really cool in terms of the research that i got to do and what i ended up with so this was the episode on pwas now Ah. this is dotnet rocks episode 1733 so if you go to 1733.pwop.me that's the pattern for better no frameworks right uh, show number.pwop.me That'll take you to the YouTube video. And, of course, if you want all the other stuff, it's at blazertrain.com. But the PWA video, I mean, I've seen demos with PWAs before. Mm-hmm. And the whole idea with, you know, progressive web applications is you take a standard 
HTML static website or whatever, and you make it a PWA by adding some, you know, a, a couple of JavaScript files and a manifest and all that stuff. And then the browser in whatever platform, you know, all the major browsers now will ask you if you want to pin this to your home screen. Mm-hmm. And when you do that, it on Windows anyway, or on a desktop, it becomes an icon and you can just click yep. and run it and you don't have any of the cruft. But on an, on a phone, you get a, you know, a home screen icon. You double click yep. that and it comes up and it looks just like an app. Well, that's the thing is people don't know the difference. They don't care, right? right. As long as it's an icon on their device, they're happy. Right. So the really cool part about PWAs is the caching because the deal is that, you know, your home screen will render whether or not you have a, um, an internet connection or not. So the, the canonical example is to turn off the internet and the browser tools, you know, turn off, give it no connection and then see if it renders. But what if on, on load, you're going out to an API and getting some data right? That you're going to now render. Okay. So in that case, you're kind of out of luck. If you're offline, you have to cache that data yourself. So it turns out it's not too hard to do that with local browser storage. So that's not a big deal. You can use browser storage to get your initial data and save it when you get it. But here's the deal. There are certain types of data that uh, in certain ways that you get data that you might want to cache in a local cache, which is separate from the PWA thing, okay? Right. So, it turns out the browser cache is really cool. It's not local storage. It's a browser cache. Mm-hmm. So, the service worker uh, in the in the basic stuff that comes in accesses this cache and it names it according to the manifest variable. Like, it comes up with a name on the fly. So, what I do, if I want to use that same cache... I I have caching code that I deliberately and specifically use to look, see if something's in the cache and not. Right. And I make sure that it's the same name. But And I know I'm going a long way around, but the whole idea is I wanted to be able to play audio. And I wanted to look in the local cache when I played it to see if it was there. And if it wasn't, I would go get it, and if it was, I would pull it out of the cache, and I'm talking about MP3 files. So, it isn't right. really enough for you to just say to add MP3 as the, to the extensions that I want to cache because I'm literally setting in JavaScript the source of a, an audio element to a URL, okay? And because I'm doing that, it's not – it sort of bypasses all the regular – caching stuff. So, I actually showed how to do that, how to use the same cache that the the service worker is using for all the other PWA stuff. And at the same time, I can cache up MP3 files that I download and turn it offline. And the ones that are cached come up. And then the ones that aren't cached, you get a message that says, you must be online to, to listen to this. So, it's really cool. cool. I mean, I walked through the real world scenario of Caching stuff in a PWA so that it actually works. So, go and with Blazor, no less, right? Like it's just yeah. PWAs are not just for for straight up web pages at, uh, at all. You can you can do uh, it whatever language you want. Right. There is one issue, however, that you got to know about if you're thinking about doing something like a a podcast, you know, consumer or whatever as a PWA. 
on Android, no problem. On iOS, you have a PWA that plays audio. It won't go in the background. It won't play in the background. Right. And this is because of iOS. Oh, yeah. No, Apple has very specific ideas of how apps are going to work, whether you like it or not. Now, if it was a native app, it would play audio in the background. But because it's a PWA, yeah. Mm-mm-mm, we're not going to uh, let you do that. There's also a difference in behavior of PWA apps on iOS, whether the icon is on the homes page or on a different page in iOS. See, I didn't know that. Oh, if yeah, it's on scary. the home page, you get more things enabled or whatever. The cache, dur- the cache has more dur- durability. If it's on a secondary page, the cache gets deleted. I chalk this all up to Apple being hostile towards PWAs. I don't disagree. They want stuff in the they app store. They want people to do native yeah. in the app store. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, anyway, long-winded, better no framework, but that's what I got. Know it, learn it, love it. Who's talking to us, Mr. Campbell? Grabbed a comment off the show, 1678 from March of 2020, which I think we actually recorded at NDC London back when that was a possibility. Oh, yeah. On the ethics of AI, well, sort of orthogonal to what we were talking about. Not a show that Amber was involved in, but probably should have been. She just wasn't there. Uh, and, and Joshua Hillerup said this, it's about a year ago now, the bit about mainstream AI applications in industry being stuck in the 1990s, and I'm pretty sure that was uh, um, Evelina that was talking about that, Yeah. in terms of fundamental research, made me chuckle as bread and butter mainstream software development is still struggling to get out of the 70s <laughs> in terms of fundamental computer science research. And yeah. I, I gave me a laugh. <laughs> I don't know. It's... It, as you're not wrong in the sense, Joshua, that in the seven set, you know, object orientation, the fundamentals came around in the seventies. But I think most people have figured out that inheritance just is a plague. Like it'll lead you down the path of doom. And, and, and even, uh, polymorphism is a, a good way to confuse people. So what are we really doing from object orientation and modern development these days? Mostly except just encapsulation. Encapsulation. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That that and composability, and you're kind of good. And uh, and even an AI perspective, well, I'm going to ask Amber about this when we we were chatting with her. That yeah, you know, I think the breakthroughs in, in modern AI came in in 2011. You know, the new vision research and and the the um, adversarial networks. We there's there's definitely new technology in play. But Joshua, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Code By is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code By, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on the Facebooks. We uh, publish every show there. And if you comment there and I read it on the show, I'll send you a copy of Music to Code By. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet and make sure you're online. That's true. You can't cash that. Can't cash sending tweets. That's true. And that brings us to our guest today, Dr. Amber McKenzie, who's Vice President of Data Science at Bombora. With a master's degree in linguistics and a PhD in computer science, she has almost 15 years of experience in data science, AI, and natural language processing. Amber's led a variety of projects in a number of different sectors, including military applications, healthcare, marketing, law enforcement, accounting, and ad tech. During her time at the University of South Carolina Oak Ridge National Laboratory, Dialogue Tech, PwC, and in her current role at Bombora. Her professional interests include NLP, machine learning, predictive modeling, and computer learning. When she does get a spare moment outside of work, she enjoys reading, board games, indoor rock climbing, and lifting weights. Welcome back. Thank you for having me. Yeah. 
Thanks hey, for being here. You talk about the Oak Ridge, like the Oak Ridge, like where the bomb was developed, that Oak Ridge. Oh, yeah. that's <laughs> When I got there, they were just phasing out the, the little things that you wore to tell you whether you'd been near too much radiation. And there are areas uh, that yes. are roped off. You can't go in there. Yep. Dear mom, yes, my you- new job is the bomb. <laughs> well, the, the the old story from the Manhattan Project was the UPPU, right? Because the the uh, atomic symbol for uh, for plutonium is PU, so UPPU. <laughs> nice. Because you get a little bit in that, it would show up. It's true. It's uh, true. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm, yeah, that just means there's a whole bunch of things you did at Oak Ridge we can't talk to you about. That is true. Also, <laughs> there are some things I can, some things I cannot. <laughs> yeah, not so much. Or they might hunt me down, you know. Nice. Uh, so the new role. Yes, that that is it is very new. So I um, I was brought on to Bombora about um, six weeks ago as VP of Data Science there, um, and they so they are uh, a B two B ad tech company, um, and mm-hmm. they. Um, they trade a lot in the data space, so looking at event data, you know, web traffic, and matching that up with the content that people are looking at to sort of be able to tell if somebody is uh, interested in buying goods and services and passing that information on. Um, but mainly business to business, we don't deal so much with uh, business to consumers. But they have a um, right. They do a good bit of NLP um, and and data science, and they needed to sort of kind of step up and and head in some new directions. Uh, that's where I come in to sort of help bring in some some more advanced NLP AI um, and machine learning capabilities to be able to kind of take us to the next level. So I'm newly in the role, but excited to be there, and um, they've got some really good people. And for me, that's you know that's key to any job if you've got a good team you could do a whole lot sure yeah absolutely and interesting to see them bringing those kinds of technologies into play so what kind of issues are you facing in your new role that uh, may have challenged you yeah so you know one of the big things that we're looking at is um most of the um most of the work that's done in this space is is at a sort of rudimentary NLP level. So can we just tell uh, what keywords people are looking at or, you know, some basic topics, things like that. But there's a fundamental difference if somebody, you know, from a business is looking at a news page about cars versus looking at a car dealership website, right? That you, you know, you think about mm-hmm. um, how people are, are looking at that content. They're looking for different reasons. And right now in the space, a lot of that is just sort of lumped together. And it's up to, you know, the sales people at organizations to go out on those leads and figure out was somebody actually interested in buying a car or were they just reading about, you know, the latest tech. Um, so that's one of the areas that I want to take us is really starting get to get at the the semantic meaning, right? So like what actually is going on um, in that particular web page to be able to say, is somebody you know interested in a car or are they just reading about it? And that's a significant step up. So that's where we're headed next. Amber, are you trying to make advertising less annoying? Um, I mean, I generally, I, don't, <laughs> I try not to give myself goals that are intractable, but, you know, ultimately... <laughs> <laughs> You know, I guess we could put that down. 
Yeah. I mean, when you actually need help, having help presented to you is really useful. Yes. When yep. that when that presentation of help is interrupting, not so useful. It's true. Yeah. Well, I can't, you know, I can't affect how people are presenting the ads, but I'm hoping that maybe we can find the people who would actually be use, you know, interested in those type of things right. as opposed to mm. kind of broadly giving it out. And two, you know, um, there's a lot being done on the marketing side. If your company is is putting out marketing campaigns, you want to target your dollars to places that are, are actually interested um, there mm-hmm. as to just kind of casting a wide net. So there's a lot that goes yeah. into the space. And honestly, there's a lot that I'm still learning. I was telling him that every, you know, when I go someplace, you know, the fundamentals of data science, NLP, machine learning are all there, you know, and that's not something I have to come up on. But every new place I've been has been a different domain. I mean, you know, legal or social work or military or ad tech or accounting. And so that's always the place that I spend most of my time is just what are we trying to do? What are our customers want? What are we selling? Um, and then being able to say, okay, yeah. these are the technologies that are going to get us closer there and, and really solve the business goals as opposed to just solving technology goals. And that's, that's what being an in industry gotta, is all about. I got <laughs> to say as sure. a consumer who's come up through the light, the entire life of the popular internet, um, you know, in the early, in the early nineties and in the nineties, all, all through the nineties, most ads were just like, you know, coming at you, bomb, 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 bomb. Right. And most of them were completely irrelevant. And I got to say now, you know, using, using, uh, social media platforms where they're actually looking at what you're interested in, aside from the fact that I always get ads for things that I just bought, which is stupid. <laughs> um, sure. I would, I, I do appreciate seeing things that they think I would be interested because I generally am. I mean, it just in the last couple of years, I've actually bought things that have come up in my Facebook feed that I would normally not have seen had they not put them there. So I do appreciate when I see an ad, it is actually something that I might be interested in rather than just like, you know, the, the constant barrage of ads you see like on YouTube or something. Yeah, well, and that's even more important right now, like with COVID, because people aren't window shopping, right? Like you're not out right. wandering the mall and, and seeing what yeah. the latest things are. Um, you know, it's, it's an interesting place that we are in right now. Mm. <laughs> Without a doubt. And, and people's attention are more sensitive than ever before. You, you, you started out talking about this whole, they're do, just doing keyword checking. Because I think sentiment analysis is an easy ad there. Like just what is people's tones? What are their moods to the, to the data that the, the text that they're producing? Yeah. Well, so, you know, it's interesting doing it all from afar, right? So what information right. can you actually pull, you know? Yeah. Okay. So, you know, they look at, you know, where, where are you traversing and, and how long are you staying there? And maybe, you know, what are, uh, you know, what is the content of the website? But like, I don't know if you looked at this website and was like, Oh my gosh, that's the ugliest car I've ever seen. You know, might, maybe, (laughs) you know, but so far, like, unless, you know, unless the government gives me access to their, you know, cameras that they've gotten everyone's fans. I mean, I can't do that. I'm just kidding. I really don't think they have a, a, 
<laughs> a camera in your fan. Everyone's are you kidding? Gonna, all the are paranoid really? people out there are freaking out now and checking their fans. No, nobody cares about you. Just you. Sort of, you just sort of said that casually. <laughs> I just got to like say, she winked when she said she was kidding. So, <laughs> <laughs> no, she didn't. <laughs> now I'm kidding. I, I think it's funny because I do get questions, uh, you know, especially from people who are a little less technologically savvy, but that, you know, they're like, oh, you know, you're out there stealing our data and whatever. And I was like, do you understand that, like, people have had your data for forever, yeah. you know, like, okay, right. yes, before they had paper ads, but they were still checking, you know, what you were buying. And like, this is not new. And two, nobody cares about like the government doesn't care about you, right? Like you, Joe Schmo in your house. <laughs> no, they didn't bug your house because seriously, they don't care. <laughs> yeah. These companies have to be careful though. I recently bought something online, um, musical equipment and I won't say who it was, but at the end they said, Hey, would you like a free hundred dollar gift card for just taking this stupid survey? So I'm like, hundred bucks. Cool. So I, I go through it and I go through it and I go through it and I get to the end. I'm like, well, this better be good. And they say, okay, click here to claim your hundred dollar prize. And I got to pick between, I got to pick free magazine subscriptions. Oh, jeez. That's it. I mean, there was no hundred dollar gift card. Like it was like pick four of these, you know, magazines and you'll get a free subscription for a year. Okay. Now I don't read freaking magazines. So. I, that was pretty shady. So, but because they did that, I'm considering not ordering from them again. Yeah, for sure. So they really have to be careful in what the way they present, you know, the the way they gather data. I mean, at least they weren't offering you, you know, a a, a CD subscription. You remember all of those, right? Like yeah. <laughs> cassette tapes, <laughs> yeah. like CD for libraries. We're going to send you out the newest, you know, <laughs> top 100. <laughs> a year supply of lemon squeezy. <laughs> Congratulations. Oh, my goodness. You have been doing, is it it's some writing around environmental impacts of AI? Yeah, well, some presentations, and I, I will caveat okay. by saying that this is, you know, I'm I'm evangelizing other people's research. Um, this is not my sure. own, but I feel like it's an important topic that should be discussed. You know, we've we've thought a lot about some of the other technologies that have come up, you know, big computer simulations, you know, blockchain that, you know, uses the energy of, of small cities, things like that. Sure. Well, like the whole discussion around cryptocurrency. Yeah. Right? right. Like you can't buy a video card right now. And all they're doing is generating bits for the possibility of a fictional kind of currency, which apparently is exchangeable for 40,000 US dollars at the moment. But okay. But they're hard to get now. We're running out of time on that. Yeah, we, yeah. we did the, um, the GPU mining for a little while and it was just diminishing returns at that point. So gave up on oh, that. Yeah. But there are, you know, we've got supercomputers that are, um, you know, have energy requirements the same as like medium-sized cities. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, we're headed towards exascale, which requires, you know, a total output of the average size U.S. coal plant. Um, and then, you know, the same thing, the current expenditure for Bitcoin alone um, is like the energy consumption of some nations like Switzerland and Czech Republic. Yeah. Um, and, and you start to think about, you know, 
what we're doing in that space. But then not a lot is talked about in terms of like the research that we're doing behind NLP, machine learning, some of that sort of thing. Um, and that's what really got me interested. I was listening to a podcast, uh, an episode of Twimmel Talk where he had um, he had a, a researcher on who's, who's doing research in this area. Uh, her name is Emma Struble. And um, she started looking into it. And, and so if you the current trends in NLP are these sort of monolithic um, sort of language generation models. BERT is sort of the big one. That's what everybody's using these days uh, to do, you know, named entity recognition, um, to do classification, to do all sorts of things. BERT? BERT, yes. Yeah, what's BERT? Uh, oh, gosh, I don't have that top of my head, but bidirectional encoder representations from transformers. There you go. So go out and look up wow. BERT tutorial and they'll give you a rundown. Uh, <laughs> I, I know you didn't have that at your fingertips, but you just called that out. Like, I just double-checked it. You got it exactly right. Oh, I do. Oh, I, okay. No, no, no. Don't, don't give me those props. I do have that at my fingertips. <laughs> I'm, also, yeah. I'm also looking um, at a story in The Guardian that says, electricity needed to mine Bitcoin is more than used by entire countries. That's definitely oh, yeah. a thing. Yeah. It is. Yeah. So you look at things like BERT um, and there's there's a good, you know, this is why I, end up, I give this on a presentation. There's a slide that shows it's got a um, an exponential curve, right? And, and BERT on some of its large um, iterations, because there's a, a small BERT and a large BERT, it's got, you know, something like 100 million features, maybe 400 million features, something like that. And then we've got other places that we're headed, like, you know, OpenAI put out GPT-2, um, NVIDIA's got one of these models, um, and Microsoft put out one uh, last January that has 17 billion features. Okay, and so these models... Holy cow. Right, they're like exploding, they're getting huge. And you have to, like, you go back and you start thinking about all of the training and research that is going into producing these models, right? Like they don't just run it and suddenly it's there. Mm -hmm. They do it over and over again. Well, so um, Emma Struble looked at the uh, sort of the carbon footprint of these models. And she specifically looked at BERT. That was one of the easiest. Um, and to train up from scratch one of these BERT models, so that means you have all the features and you put it into the machine um, to do the computational power to make all the weights and everything. In order to train that model, it is the energy consumption of five cars in their lifetime. The same CO2. Wow. Yeah. And so you think about, we've got, we've got that BERT model, which came out in October 2018. Five cars just to train the base model. Now, once it's trained... You can just use it or you can alter it for your purposes. So not everybody's out there training these from scratch, but you, it, the researchers are. And then you look at the Microsoft model right. that's 17 billion features. I mean, you do the math, right? Like, wow. It's huge. And, they're, and these are typically rendered on GPUs as well. Like it's interesting. We're, we're all computing with GPUs here, right? Like the competition for these scalar compute units are important, but the carbon emissions you're talking about is the carbon emissions of the electricity consumed to do the computation. Yeah. Yep. So the, yeah, all so of this really comes down to how is the electricity made? 
<laughs> well, that is true. Yeah. So that's another thing that I've got that I, that I sort of look at in my presentation. If you, you know, they, they're, if you look at some of the, you know, who's using renewable, who's using gas, coal, nuclear, right. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I've got a chart that's got China and Germany and the United States and for renewable, we're the worst, right? So we're sure. at 17%. Germany's up to 40% renewable energy. Um, mm. And, and that has a big, you know, a big factor in it. I think for me, it boils down a good bit to yes. Like where are you getting your, your energy from? And, and honestly, if you're having the, you know, if you're making considerations between like the cloud providers or compute providers, I mean, they break down Amazon versus Google versus Microsoft and the amount of renewable that they're using. Um, Google's right. at the top of that list. Um, so that's a consideration. But two, like, it's interesting right now as all of these big models are coming out, people are jumping on that bandwagon and saying, well, we need this model because it's, you know, it's what everyone's using. Right. And I would argue, right. Probably. Advantage. Yeah. Probably 75% of the cases, <laughs> they don't need <laughs> like the latest and greatest model to analyze their data. Um, but you know, that nobody's talking about it. Nobody's talking about the ramifications. Like if I'm going to go and choose a model, yeah, probably I'm just going to choose, you know, the one that's out there that's got the best, but maybe I shouldn't. Maybe I should think about, oh, if I use this model, it's using significantly more, you know, energy and producing more carbon. Maybe I'll try some of these simpler algorithms first and see if those suffice for my needs. You probably won't, though, because you want the biggest bang for your buck. There's no incentive for you to do it. Yep. Green. Um, hold that that's thought true. for just a minute while we take a moment for this important message. If you've had automating your ASP.NET deployments on your to-do list, now's a great time to give Octopus Deploy a try. The Starter Edition lets you install Octopus on your own infrastructure and deploy to IIS web servers, Azure websites, and pretty much anything from Node to Kubernetes, and they just made it free for small teams. Give your team a single place to release, deploy, and operate software with Octopus Deploy. Find out more at octopus.com. All right, and we're back. It's .NET Rocks. I'm Carl Franklin. That's my friend, Richard Campbell. Howdy. And uh, that's Amber McKenzie. And we're talking about all the environmental concerns. And going back to the Bitcoin thing for a minute, I just did a little cursory research in terms of how long it takes to mine one Bitcoin. <laughs> you know, if you have like a – if you've got a good rig, and I don't mean like, you know, the people have crazy rigs that take lots of power – but mm-hmm. uh, I guess that, you know, Bitcoins are finite, so it's kind of like an arms race to grab the next one. And there are pools of miners that have, that do, that you know, you share the risk, share the reward. But I also saw that it can take months to mine just one yeah. Bitcoin, right? Yeah, it's gotten very scarce these days. So Well, the, the, the way the algorithm works, they're ahead of the intended coin release. And so the algorithm actually gets harder as you try and push further along these things. So you're wasting more and more compute cycles. Right. So don't be thinking like, hey, I'm a gamer. I got a rig. And, you know, when I go to sleep at night, I can mine Bitcoin. No, that's not going to be. That was true in 2009. Yeah. That is not true today. 
Yeah. And so the guys that are doing it are wasting big, big, big power. And so just the whole, the whole thing is set up to just exhaust the world of electricity resources. If that's where the arms race is going to go. Yeah. And you, and you, you know, it's a, it's an even more in-depth problem, you know, looking at just the mining of the Bitcoin, but Bitcoin is blocked or is backed by blockchain technology mm-hmm. and blockchain technology in general is, is extremely computationally intensive as well. Mm-hmm. So it, you know, just setting up all of that. Yeah. It's, mm-hmm. it's a problem. <laughs> it's really interesting to think in terms of the resources consumed by your software, essentially. Because mm-hmm. I mean, I'm looking at, these three, the three big cloud providers, I think are, they're all making sustainability moves. They're all trying to get to 100% renewable. So it's like, use our cloud. We'll, we, we'll give you your forgiveness for your, for your energy consumption. Yeah. By, by, we'll, we'll zero it out, even if countries are further behind on that. Like, this is not cars. Richard, a little speculation. First, uh, cloud provider to create, to, uh, use a nuclear, uh, power plant. Well, they already do. We just don't. No, no, you know, they don't own them. A dedicated nuclear like, yeah, power plant. Their own. Yeah, they. I don't know of any any data centers right now that have dedicated power plants. They have dedicated backup power. I mean, I've done tours of the data centers in Eastern Washington that are completely hydroelectrically powered, mm. right? Which is considered a sustainable power source. Sure. Uh, and they and they got rid of their generators because they got access to two different dams. Mm. So the the point being, we have backup power in the form of a different dam. Right. So we don't we're not dependent on a single power source. Uh, it is interesting to think in terms of because you you realize that cloud providers now are starting to lay their own data cable yeah. under sea cables, right. right? Like that path's already on. So how much longer before they start requesting permits for their own power plants? And we were talking on the geek outs about, you know, the, the small factor nuclear power plants that are yeah. actually much more manageable and maintainable and uh, produce less waste and stuff like that. So I'm just wondering. Well, a small, a small, a modular reactor would be about 60 megawatts. That's just a big data center. Yeah. Like very realistically. Yep. That would be your power for 20 years with a, no carbon emission. Yep. Right. You, but you got the challenges of nuclear. So granted, the modular reactor is a heck of a lot more safe right. and 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 uh, better and more advanced than the typical power plant out there today. But either way, it's fascinating to consider the idea that these companies are big enough to buy power. And plants. with a molten salt reactor, you know, at the same site to reprocess all the the waste, then. Yeah, I don't think you do that with modular, but oh, okay. it, but that's certainly a, a line that they're going mm-hmm. down. But yeah, but it, this I is interesting. The, the comment you made about sort of accountability, you know, uh, mm-hmm. there are lots of companies who do things that put out a lot of waste who are are held generally held accountable, right? Like mm-hmm. they've got to offset their carbon emissions. Um, yeah, you know, I haven't looked into it recently, but as of for a while ago, you know, you're you know, your data computational needs, I don't think is generally audited or, or considered and stuff like that. Right. So, you know, that's another thing that eventually needs to be considered, I think. You know, I'm looking at the websites from Amazon and Microsoft and Google about sustainability in their cloud. And what these really read to me as is 
here's our effort so you won't regulate us. <laughs> yeah, right. We're doing it already. Right, don't look. <laughs> you're doing, we're making happy noises. Don't look here. Mm-hmm. We're on it. We're good. Right. Yeah. Well, and there's, and for me, I think because there's so much less of a focus in our country about renewable resources, I think, than there should be, um, mm-hmm. you know, there it's more of a marketing pull sometimes, right? Just to be like, look, we're, you know, we're more sustainable than the other guy, less than a, a requirement and more of just like a, Hey, this is a way for us to show we're, we're better than the competitor, right? We're the good guys. Yeah. 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 Well, and it's one of those things where once one of them did it, all of them had to do it because it is a competition. Yep. And, And it's just one more thing in any, corporate governance and any company trying to decide what provider we're going to go with it's like where are we on the green thing well that's it yeah. and, and i think there has to be some incentive to go green as i was saying before and you know that the that typically falls in the in the realm of subsidies right you carbon credits and that kind of thing but you know that's the kind of stuff you have to do but it ultimately comes down to energy so how how do you uh, incentivize companies and people to go green without? I hate to say it, it's going to end up being the same reason that the the cloud providers are. There's going to be some companies who are doing a lot of data science who use it as a marketing pull, right? Who say, "Hey, right. look, we're making sustainable." machine learning and AI choices from, you know, an environmental standpoint, once somebody, a big, you know, a big company goes out there and uses that and then starts putting pressure and says, well, we're doing this, what's everybody else do? You know, that's normally the way of it. It's a lot harder to, I don't know, I think make a green AI movement. That's right. We need it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, but I think there's another angle of this, which is, we're now at a point in our industry where we have more compute almost than we know what to do with. And so we've been very inefficient with it. Like Moore's law has given us the byproduct of tremendous amounts of compute keep coming along. And so we, we find a way to use it. There's no incentive to efficiency when there's so much compute available. Although I really think 2021 is going to be an inflection point because we are going to have a crisis in compute. Right. The byproduct of the pandemic has been an interruption in supply lines. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and we're just coming into this. You know, this shows out, I think it's on April 1st. So, hey, happy April Fool's Day. <laughs> but the point being, like, the shortage of GPUs is very real. It'll be interesting to see when that impacts the cloud providers. Because cloud providers are trying to rent us GPU time. And there's only so much to go around. Yeah. So, we're going to have some hardware constraints. But generally speaking, we haven't. And we've been using things relatively inefficiently is there a success story or two where cloud providers have actually saved money by going more green i mean i get the whole marketing thing you know you can make it back that way um but but is there a a, any as i said a success story where somebody went green and actually became more efficient and saved money yeah, so I don't know what it looks like in terms of energy costs these days, but until, so my assumption is because everybody's not clamoring to go renewable that it's not as monetarily viable as, you know, they would like, right? If it was super cheap, they'd go that direction. Right. What I hope is that, like, you know, just what you're talking about, some of the crisis, you know, right now the trend 
in, in machine learning has just been bigger and bigger, right? Like mm. mm-hmm. the fact that they're just making models with more features, right? Let's just throw more data at it. And that's going to be our solution for better NLP has to change at some point, right? Like we can't just keep going in that direction. So there's going to have to be, and, and this has actually been the case for deep learning for a little while like we're just going to hit a wall. Like you can't just throw more data. So at some point there's going to have to be a fundamental shift, a break in research, you know, that kind of shifts that around. And I'm hoping that it moves us away from the computationally intensive stuff we've sort of been on top of lately. Didn't we see this in vision as well, where lower resolution, lower color plane images actually got better recognition results than, you know, just cranking it up to 11? Yeah, well, vision's a good example, right? Because it, it, it has so many data points, like, and it, it goes up exponentially as you get, you know, better resolution and whatnot. And so they had to do something about that, especially because if you're going to analyze vision more real time, we just didn't mm-hmm. have, you know, some people don't have the computational power can't to be doing, handle that. Yeah. <laughs> well, you don't have the bandwidth, right? It's like you got a 4K, 24-bit color at real time, you know, 60 frame per second image coming down. I don't care what pipe you got. That's going to pin you to the wall, right? yeah. much less the compute to understand Well, the it. first step in doing any kind of image recognition is to pixelate it because it, Dial it's, it down. Yeah, it's easier to find shapes first and then maybe you know, concentrate on areas where there might be detail. But if you've got that much detail and you're just trying to find basic shapes, good luck. But see, that was forced upon them, right? Because Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. they didn't just decide to do that necessarily, right? Like if, if they could have, you know, the bandwidth to analyze, you know, super sharp images, they, they would, but that's not really tractable. And so they scaled it back. I'm hoping that'll happen with NLP as well. That's really interesting. Yeah. So it's, it's, the constraints were not due to environmental considerations. They were due to compute considerations. They actually came up with a compute problem bigger than they could solve. Yeah. But NLP could benefit from that as well. But it's very interesting to think about what the equivalent of pixelation is for text. Yeah. I, there's every now and then I, I miss the research side. I miss like sort of being able to dive <laughs> into one of those super complex problems. I, you know, I found it, there are lots of people that, are, you know, thrive on the research side. For me, I really found it interesting, but it can, it can get tedious, right? And you can go down a number of paths that mm-hmm. don't lead anywhere. Um, but, you know, there's going to have to be, well, there's, there has been since, NLP was invented, you know, that there's got to be some, we have to come up with some innovations on the, on the algorithmic side. And then we're going to have to have some of the linguistic, you know, further analysis that starts to tell us uh, the areas that we should be looking at. That's always a marrying of the two. And I don't know where things are going to go right now. Um, I'll be interested to see. Currently, it's all, you know, Bert and these big algorithms, but we'll see where it goes. It's not a way that they're thinking right now, but somebody yeah. might. And I hate to, but it's going to take them a while to get there, like with the research. <laughs> Somebody's probably doing it. Yeah, for sure. But and it's interesting for your career too, because I also think you going into the field and taking your AI knowledge and applying it should be beneficial if you do go back into research to say like, this is what the other side is actually seeing of this stuff. 
<laughs> like that, oh. that gap. I'm thinking back to the comment Joshua made, like the gap between what researchers are exploring in AI versus what the industry is applying in AI is pretty large. Mm-hmm. It is. Yep. Um, it's <laughs> the landscape between research and industry is sort of interesting little bit political, right? There's this culture that is like research is sort of pure and you do it for research sake. And there's a little bit more, there's a good bit more um, sort of collaboration going on between universities and private business who, you know, need, they need more of the research side and um, they're not necessarily don't have the resources to spend the cycles. Um, But generally like it's a little bit harder. It's easier to go from, academia to industry and it's a little harder to go back simply because sort of there's this idea that you've you've missed out on the fundamentals you've lost sort of a bit of of where things have headed you haven't just contaminated yourself with industry thinking (laughs) and rather than academic thinking that's that's (laughs) generally the the thought (laughs) that's amazing yeah so it's like you get to go in industry, but coming back to academic, that's hard. It is hard, yeah. And sometimes, like, if you get far enough along and you've made a name for yourself and you've been very successful, then they'll mm. bring you back. And then it's like sort of, honestly, a marketing ploy. Look, we've got this, you know. This high, rock star. Yeah, this high up person who's who's come back and has joined, you know, our our department and stuff like that. But it's a it's an interesting world. <laughs> Yeah, no question. Uh, I've I've pressed against the politics of academia enough just to be aware. It's like, oh, that's its own crazy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Everybody's, every area has their own skeletons. (laughs) Oh, yeah. no. There's the crazy politics of the C-suite of most large corporations, and there's the crazy politics of the tenured professors in in research areas, too. Like, (laughs) they're all their own crazy. (laughs) Think you're crazy. Yep. It's really fascinating. But, yeah, I mean, I love what you're working on. This is, is cool stuff. But I wonder if we can't – if this is something we can't get from the cloud providers. Just like, give me the kilowatts involved in this run. You know, the same – just part of the result set is the, in, the energy consumed. I'd love to know the kilowatt per transaction. But somebody's got to want that, right? Like, yeah. somebody important. Not you or me, <laughs> like somebody, yeah. you know, like one of the, you know, a big corporation who's using enough uh, of their, you know, cloud providers resources for it to matter needs to care enough yeah. to be like, tell me about this. How do you stack up against somebody else? But yeah, I have to find anybody who cares. Yeah, enough. Certainly. Yeah. Because we are granulating our billing these days, right? Like my ability to look into an Azure bill for a company and be able to break it down by by department, even even down to individual applications is interesting. So if I know how much it costs, I could probably find out how much energy was consumed to cost that. Yeah, if you could like, break I down the, the pieces are there. The different how much of renewable versus, you know, everything else. Yeah. Yeah. And and just you know, even if I just knew the power consumed. Then you can then you could talk in terms of can I tune this to consume less power? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, uh, that was kind of what was interesting um, about Emma's paper. You know, is that she she did have to break that down into like mm-hmm. what went into training that model, and they you know so there's 
those GPUs and also there's TPUs that Google uses, right? Mm, the tensor right. processing units. So that has its mm-hmm. own um, energy consideration. But um, she sort of dove into what went into training these models and, and how that gets translated into, you know, carbon usage and stuff like that. It was really interesting to kind of look at what she did there. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I think that's part of the reason that while I'm not doing any actual work in the area or research in the area that I've been trying to kind of give talks about this on what I know about it, you know, I'm not an expert, mm-hmm. but I largely would just like people to, to know that it's a thing that you should be thinking about at some point. Right. right. Should be thinking about it. But is this also going to impact your work? Like you're now thinking about this while you're doing natural actress processing solutions for your company, you know, for your employer. So there, you know, there's a footprint there as well. Like w- what decisions are you going to make different with that consideration in play? Yeah. And so that, you know, that's a, it's an interesting thought, but there's, there are areas that it's impactful and areas that it's not right. So like if we are, if we're just using already pre-built models, actually the energy consumption is, is decently negligible. Right. So the consideration comes in um, when you start, training your own. So when I was at PwC, we, we trained up a BERT model with some PwC specific data so that it was a little bit more targeted. So that's a case that mm-hmm. like, if we're going to start doing that regularly, we need to, you know, we need to take, do we need to be doing that? Well, so isn't that a consideration for you in your current work to say, I'm going to tend to use existing models rather than think I should just make my own? Yeah, for sure. Well, if, if, you know, if you get to a point where you're thinking about training your own model, you've got to figure out um, what are my business ramifications. And, and that's actually something I've been working with my team a lot on is, is coming like it's, it's really easy to get in a data science group and just be focused on the technology and what we're doing and, and just using the best thing for whatever, you know, um, solution we're trying to go after, but really like getting a handle on, what are the ramifications for what we're doing? How does it fit into our broader business problem? If we're thinking about mm-hmm. using um, this method that's going to take way longer, it's going to use more resources and whatever, is it going to give us an, an incremental benefit that's, yeah, that's actually worth the time and the money and, and possibly the... Because there's also a NIMBY aspect to this, right? It's like, we should always be making our own things. Like, why would I use somebody else's right. stuff? Plus, making your own things is cool. Yeah, it is. Right? Like, <laughs> building a model is kind of cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I'm, I'm glad to see, like, transfer learning is very big right now, um, which yeah. is helpful, right? So, that... You so, know, so, the ability to take a model and apply it to other scenarios. Yep, exactly. Uh, you know, I'm glad to see that that is, uh, you know being used more widely because that's a place that could be helpful. If you've already got models, just tuning them a bit to fit your problem a little better than, um, more resource efficient. Yeah. Using your own model, you know, those things are kind of in vogue right now as well, which is good. Cool. Well, it's fascinating for me. I'm certainly going to take in some notes here to, to keep an eye on this. And, And I'm a measurements guy. Like I'm big on how could I instrument this? How could I know all of the time? Uh, what what's being consumed and how it's being consumed? Yeah, I wonder if there's a factor of kilowatts to dollars that the that you would be relatively reliable for your average cloud provider. 
Yeah, I think if, you know, this were a bigger issue, a good um, startup opportunity would be to sort of be a consulting company for energy consumption uh, within large Mm -hmm. corporations, like being able to audit, you know, energy usage and tell you where you can do better or where you might get dinged. But right now you're not going to get dinged. So (laughs) it's maybe not the right time for that, but. I, I think it's coming. I think there's a there's a move towards dealing with these things. So I think you're very timely, Amber. And also, I think you know the clean nuclear stuff that Richard and I are following closely, and uh, that that shows a lot of promise. Of course, expensive at first, but the the you know the ramifications are really really good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Amber, thank you. It's been a a blast. Thanks for having it's me. It's been a Bitcoin mining. <laughs> I don't know if that's a compliment or not. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> or did we get the Bitcoin, or we were just working? Oh, absolutely. It? Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. A sack of it's carbon. Been a sack of carbon. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks again, Amber. It was great. Thank you. All right, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time.